Hi, and welcome to Stressed, the podcast to develop your stress resilience. Being ambitious and successful while living a happy life is possible. Learn how you can better cope with stress in day-to-day -day situations by applying tools and techniques that work for you. My name is Julia Arndt, and I'm extremely grateful that you decided to check out my podcast today. Let's get started. Hi, Sue Ann. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well, Julia. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited about our conversation. Yes, me too. So before we jump into learning a little bit more about you, I would love to pick up our listeners and hear where you are located, in which time zone you are at, and what you've been up to this morning. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, hello from the state of Georgia. I'm in Atlanta, and right now it is 3.05 Eastern time. And uh, what I've been up to this morning is I was getting prepared for a presentation this week at UPS and NAP Atlanta, and we're going to talk about the art of influence. So I just literally finished my um, presentation and sent that off this morning and then had a couple meetings. So looking forward to this. Very nice. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you and what have you been up to over the last couple of years? You know, it's uh, interesting that you asked me the question, who am I? Because that sounds so simple, but I had to really think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way I would describe myself is that uh, first I'm an immigrant uh, from Seoul, Korea to the U.S. I am a daughter and a, and a friend and a coach and a mentor, a leader, and a builder of relationships and trust and really focusing on making an impact on the community. So I would say a community builder. Okay, great. And so where did you work at and where are you working now? So I used to work for State Farm Insurance Companies out of college and grad school and worked, started work in Michigan. And I actually stayed with the organization for about 28 and a half years, but did multiple different types of jobs and, and had a really great career. And last year we were going through a reorganization and the leadership and uh, area. And they asked me if I would rather stay and do the particular assignment they, they provided me or if I wanted to do something uh, different. And uh, so I got a package. So I said, you know what? I think I can do something different and follow a deeper passion for helping more people and more in terms of development. So that's what I've been up to. So I literally started the Center for Asian Pacific American Women at the end of April last year. So it's been just over a year. Wow. And what does that center do? So our mission is to build whole person AAPI women leaders one person at a time. Okay. And we want to be the premier organizations that others come to for expertise in developing women and to pursue whatever it is that they want to pursue in their life and their purpose. Okay. Wow. That's so impressive. So basically you came from Seoul and Korea at what age? I was eight years old and I actually flew by myself from Seoul, Korea, and then ended up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Okay. And uh, so that was really a culture shock and uh, a big change for me. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was a, it was a, a life altering 
change, but at the same time, amazing, uh, because that she really changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. And did you come with your parents or you said you, you took a plane by yourself? Did your parents come afterwards or was it just you that was sent to the U.S.? The, that sounds logical, but um, I came to the U.S. by myself. I was actually adopted by my aunt. Okay. And uh, she knew that, uh, you know, my parents needed help. And uh, so she decided to adopt her younger sister's daughter. Okay. And uh, she was single, actually, when she adopted me. And she was actually... Uh, assistant professor and uh, so it was just the two of us for a long time you know and uh, it was a really interesting journey because I had to get used to having her as mom mm -hmm. yeah so you lived in Michigan and you got there at the age of eight and I assume you didn't speak any English uh, I did not speak any English I remember on the plane over I was copying the alphabet to learn how to write the alphabet and i think i used to always put the s's backwards i remember that because s's were hard i don't know why yeah. but um i learned and um and i did my best i got a tutor i had a high school tutor uh, my aunt made sure that i had um, really an opportunity to learn english well because she wanted to make sure i did not have an accent she wanted she thought that that was something that was detrimental for her because of the discrimination that she felt during her time. So that was one of the things that she was very, very insistent is to have a tutor. Wow. Well, I can confirm that you don't have an accent at all. <laughs> Just a Michigan accent. Not like the German accent. So I mean, you definitely have something in common there as well, right? Um, I've never really considered myself as an immigrant, more I think as an expat, but you know, um, I've been living over, six different countries over the last 12 years. So I've been a foreigner <laughs> in many different countries over the last couple of years and had obviously really different experiences in different countries. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And so much to learn from that, you know, from, uh, from being foreign born and coming into different countries. And I think what you're doing is phenomenal. Thank you. So what was your, so it sounds obviously there's a huge passion behind, um, helping Asian Pacific women to get into leadership. Um, and I want to learn a little bit more about where that motivation came from. Um, why did you think about doing that? And yeah, how does that connect to your own experience and journey? So one of the things that um, I think is important is that as I think about the career trajectory I had, I had a lot of really uh, futuristic leaders who I think invested in me. So I, I had to really think about what is it that they did to help me progress and then in turn, what can I do? So here's an example. When I first started, I went into an area in State Farm I knew nothing about. So like data processing, my, my major was business. I knew nothing about data processing and all the things that are associated with it, learning about job control language, what I learned very quickly is that it's a lifelong learning. You have to be a lifelong learner in order to succeed. So that was a very first lesson that I learned going into these different areas that I knew nothing about. And people in certain places, my boss, especially my first supervisor, she was confident 
in what I was able to do and like really gave me that bold, you know, that uh, confidence level and the boost and opened the doors. And, but none of my mentors at that time and none of my supervisors at that time were Asian American. It was all pretty much Caucasian leadership team. So I kind of grew up only the only, and I got used to that throughout my entire career until I got to that department head level. Then I reported to an Asian American, my first Asian American department head boss who said, what are you still doing here? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. But what he was challenging me was, you, I see potential in you to do other things, but you're still here and I'm trying to understand why. And do you, you know, do you even understand your potential? He was really the first person, I think, that really pushed me beyond where I was currently to a level that um, I did not even dream I could, I could do. So it sounds like you had a pretty positive experience as an immigrant coming to the United States. Well, yes, from the support perspective, I, I did. And um, one of the very first assignments that I got, I was 27 years old. And I, re I got an assignment to take a department from 62 people to 19 people. That's what you call the big, hairy, audacious assignment that I had no idea I could even do. I could, you know, it was a promotion, but I was really, um, I was really nervous and I was shocked. And it was one of those things where I really wondered if I could do it. And that was probably one of three or four really significant experiences that were difficult that some of these leaders said, we need to put her in that position to really push. And there were times that I doubted myself. I had some people who doubted me as well, but I doubted myself too. I didn't know I could do it. And I think my mentor saw something. Um, and um, beyond what I could see in myself, and he really pushed. And that was my first experience of having an Asian American leader push me because I'd never had that experience. So, like I said, there were probably, I can name probably three to four key experiences where somebody said, we need to put her there. And then that journey was not always easy. So, what are, like, what? Would you say were the biggest challenges and I, you know I'm, I'm even thinking like you were yes Asian um, but also female um, and especially kind of may, maybe that mix but I feel like almost just female alone being a, a female leader um, you know 20 years ago I guess in, in the insurance business um, what was that like? So one of the things that was interesting is all the locations for the most part that I was in beyond Atlanta Every location was small town. Small town, very few minorities for the most part, I was it. And there's two things that, that really stand out. Number one is that I always felt like I was representing Asian American women. Like it didn't matter if they're Korean American, Vietnamese American, Chinese American, I was the representative and representing all these people. And I felt like I couldn't make a mistake. I felt a lot of pressure that if I made a mistake, it was on a kind of a bigger stage because there weren't any, there wasn't really that many other people. And so I felt a tremendous amount of responsibility from that perspective. The second thing was, you know, the, 
the unintended, or I'm going to say un, the biases that came with being a, a female Asian woman, where I saw certain peers get treated a certain way, but then when it came to me, I felt it was different. So an example, I had a peer who was a trainee, just like I was to go into uh, second line leadership and, and beyond. The department at the time would, you know, she was a white female and he was like very much mentoring her directly and um, making sure that she had what she needed. When it came to me, however, he asked if I wouldn't mind reporting to a second line level leader. So remember, I'm going through the same program, right? But yet he wanted me to report to a person one level below him who was basically the same level as me. And so that was, that was one of those things I said, you know, and I had to push back and say, you know what, I don't think that's appropriate. I appreciate, you know, I don't know, you know, we can talk about it, but, you know, I, I look at, you know, my peer and she got this training from you directly. So, you know, what, why would that be different? So that was a good example of where I had to kind of stand up for myself and say, I don't think this looks right. You know, and to have to, to, to do that, it takes courage to do that. But that was an example of several that, you know, I experienced over, over the years. Yeah. Okay. So there were definitely challenges, I assume. And, you know, you just mentioned a couple of examples as well. Um, and you said already courage is one of the things that is probably how you overcame that and just speaking up and standing, standing up for yourself. Um, when people are listening now and they're maybe also Asian American um, and think about, oh, I maybe have similar situations at work or maybe even outside of work, what would you recommend them to do? Oh, so there were several times that's a great question because it just brings back some memories. But one of the things that I had to do was I had to make a commitment to myself, number one, because speaking up, by the way, to authority, that is very difficult. Mm -hmm. It's difficult enough as an Asian American, but then it was getting more difficult, again, because of the pressure that I was putting myself under as well. And one of the things that I decided I had to learn how to do is build the relationship, build the trusting relationship up front so that when I have to have these conversations, I could have it and still have the relationship stay intact. Mm -hmm. And so an example of that was I had an, a peer who was very strong in his opinions and actually was, um, had situations where he was actually checking in on my operation in, a, in, a, in the background. With that. And so one of the things I found out was, okay, so he's a peer of mine. I respect him, but I'm not sure why he's doing this. So I had to go into his office and I had to close the door. I sat down and I asked him a question about, Hey, this is something that's really important to me. Our relationship is important, but there's something that's really bothering me and I need to talk to you about it. But we had a relationship before that, that I had built with him. And so it helped to have that trust before. It's more difficult when you don't, and I've had that too. Um, and in those situations, I just had to be a little bit strategic about when and how. So the when and how was important in terms of, do I go to their office? Do I make an, so I usually make an appointment 
So I would say, can I have, make an appointment with you for a specific conversation? And that's how I would proceed is to make a special request. Did you grow up, you would say more Asian culture or more American culture? Because your aunt was also Asian American. Correct. So absolutely. So I grew up in a household that was Asian. So Asian traditions and food, but at the same time, I think what helped was that my aunt, my mom, now my mom, was working as a professional in the U.S. So she understood, I think I had that advantage because she understood the Western culture. And so that helped me in terms of how to acclimate because there were situations where I just, I didn't know how to handle it. So I talked to her about it, you know, um, at the same time, um, talking she has asian very asian values and since i grew up in the u.s i have a mixture of asian and western values so sometimes that's difficult mm -hmm. between the two of us right so you know uh even about dating oh my goodness that's just that's a whole another topic and that's a whole another podcast julia okay. but in well, terms of <laughs> but in terms of just having that you know, Western kind of more, I felt it was more choices and it's my choice versus being told, you know, you got to be a doctor or a, or a lawyer or, you know, heaven forbid a philosophy major, you know, from my, my parents' perspective. But there are certain things that they valued, like education. Mm -hmm. You know, education is highest, probably one of the highest form of value in the Eastern culture, at least in my household. And so there are certain things that we agreed on and there are certain things we did not agree on. And so that makes it interesting dynamic on top of the professional piece. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of put the pieces together because I'm seeing a, a super inspiring, powerful woman in front of me. Um, and I wonder, was this, was Sue Ann always like this? Um, how were you when you came over to the US? Um, what experiences shaped you as a human being um, or you know where you may be really different growing up and then you just had to step up over and over again in order to become the person that you are today so my earliest experiences I think when I first came I remember the very first decision I had to make on my own at eight was when I got off the plane in Hawaii I needed to figure out which bus to take in order to get to customs because there was a gap between somebody watching me and me getting to customs mm -hmm. so i watched this one woman who i knew was staying in hawaii so she went on one bus so i picked the other one okay. so one of the things i learned immediately is that i can figure stuff out mm -hmm. and then the second thing that i learned was that because we moved a lot with my mom's job um when she you know she was a professor and she moved around quite a bit is that i had i learned to adapt and, like observe the environment and adapt very quickly to and figure things out how things worked who was you know who was making the decisions or whatnot so one of the things that i think i learned very quickly is how to assess my environment it was almost like survival mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah so that worked well in the corporate space because you have to almost observe and figure out, because I, as I tell people, even though you think it's all about logic, it is not always about logic. 
So what is the relationship? Who makes the decisions? People could be at the same level, but somebody has more influence than another person. So I think those were great lessons to learn. And the other thing is, you know, I learned how to give value. So what I mean by that is I needed to give something first sometimes to break the, the ice and or to build trust. And so I learned to do that. It's like, what is important to you, Julia, or to whoever I'm working with? Or if, like, I needed to find out quickly what's important to that person. And so what value can I deliver for you to, to you know, create that trusting relationship? And I think that was a big lesson too. And that's really emotionally intelligent, as we call it today, right? To kind of go the, the people route and make those observations. And I loved how you said earlier, it was all about building trust with the people. And then if a challenge came up, I was a lot more comfortable to address it. And I, um, and I had that trust with the other person. So, so it made it easier for me to navigate maybe more challenging situations. Yes, because I had about when I was uh, in claims, in the auto claims area, I had about 40 plus leaders reporting to me. And, you know, so you have to lead leaders through leaders. I had the, a second line leader and then a, um, the first line leaders. And, you know, we're all trying to work towards a common goal, but sometimes I had to have some very difficult conversations. If we had the trust in the relationship, then I could push it harder. I could push a little further and they could push on me and they know I had their back. So I think that's one of the things that I really valued in terms of leadership lessons is that I invest in people and because at some points things are not going to go smoothly, yeah. you know, and so then you have to, you know, figure out a way through it and you don't always agree. Right. But when we walk out the door, we're going to all execute. Yeah. And so I think those are the things that I learned, um, that was very important is creating that trusting relationship and knowing people, really knowing people the best that I could, even though I had a lot of people. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you that question actually, because in my head I'm like, okay, I know there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that are leading teams and the bigger the teams get and the more responsibilities you have, the less time you have. So it is harder to connect almost not one-to-one -one with people, but to connect also on that personal level. Was there like something that you always did when moving, meeting with people or what, what is kind of your approach to that? My people, to me, that was the most important because if I could help my people support my people, they'll take care of the customers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, I would reach down. I tried my best with the time that I had to one to two times a year, I would meet with every leader, um, even for 15 to 30 minutes and talk about their development, what's going on in, in their world. And just, and they all knew, they all knew this about me, which was when they come into my office, it's kind of like, what's your plan? <laughs> what's your development plan? And what are you doing right now? And so what is it that I can do to support you? So they probably pretty much knew I was going to ask those questions. And then, you know, learn a little bit more about what's happening with their families and whatnot. But to me, that was important time for us, even if it was short, because I got a temperature of where they're at, where their minds are. They can ask me whatever they wanted. 
and uh, whether I could answer it or I can't answer it, I would tell them. If I can't answer something, I would tell them that. Yeah. Or if there's something that I could share with them, I would. So I think that was very important time. And it's not about longevity of the meeting, it's the frequency I felt was important. Okay. And, um, and if it was even short stints, the touch points are important. So if I'm on the floor talking to people or whatnot, that was very important that they saw me visibly, even the claim handlers, if they saw me visibly on the floor, even for a minute, ask them how they're doing, it made a difference for them. So those were lessons that I hold very, very dearly. And I still practice that even with volunteers. Yeah, I love that. It's great. And um, I feel like that's probably, do you think that that's one of the values that women leaders bring versus male leaders? Um, there's a, I think there's study, the Center for um, Talent Innovation did a study on, you know, these different characteristics of men and women, you know, from a perspective of, you know, emotional intelligence, I think women did better than men in terms of focus and in terms of achievement and driving the results in terms of, because there's more singularly focused that was better for the men. And so I think there is something to be said about women and their ability to um, have these kind of, and, and, I, and I don't want to say men aren't nurturing because there are men who are nurturing and all of that. But I think women do well with that. Um, and so that's part of it is not only am I going to talk to you about, you know, the work, I'm going to talk to you about your little bit more about maybe your family, your life, maybe a little bit more holistic view of that person versus just what are you doing to deliver results yeah and i and i think it's a really interesting fact to know because then if like because you're a trainer as well for companies it's like okay men need maybe more tips on emotional intelligence and maybe women more tips on how to be focused and productive and yes because we get all multitasking and we think that's more productive, but I think science really shows that it's really not that much more productive to be multitasking. It's better if you focus and move on to the next thing. So that's, that's huge. The other thing I was going to mention a little bit is this whole concept of emotional tax. And what I mean by that is as a minority and a female, um, you do spend, you know, you do have this emotional tax in the workplace where you're exerting energy to decide whether or not you want to take a risk on saying something or not take a risk. And it's, and there's a little bit of being on guard. And I felt that I felt that and some of that's me, you know, and some of it is what kind of response you get, you know, when you do speak up. Right. So if you're supported, if your ideas are supported or if at least they're listened to without being dismissed, then you're going to do more of that. Right. But if you feel like you're being dismissed, uh, then, you know, you're not going to be as risk taking probably because you've had not a positive response. And I've had both experiences. You know, I've had bosses who are awesome at listening actively listening and really understanding what you're trying to convey. And I've had others who will cut you off, you know, and so I've had both experiences. So it shaped whether I spoke up or didn't speak up. And yeah. Yes, I mean, that's a powerful subject because 
a lot of people because of especially the negative experiences you know they they then bring that into their next experience into their future experience or in their present exactly. experience um and they they might get triggered or they might be afraid now because you know their experience in the past was that they spoke up and people didn't appreciate it how do you teach asian american women and also i'm sure like this is completely applicable to everyone how do you teach people to overcome these things well when i when i was a first line supervisor and i was in a meeting with my vice president i think i broke out into a sweat when i had to speak up <laughs> i literally i think i broke out into a sweat I, and one of the things that i had to really do is sit there and go what is the one thing i can contribute like no matter what the meeting is and i call it the get in and get out method what can I, so get in and get out method, meaning I can go in, get my idea or my thoughts in early and then get out. So I don't have to continue to engage in the conversation, but can I get my thoughts out there? Because it's all about showing how you think as a leader. And so that's an important piece of information, right? As a leader, if you're interested in moving up, people have to understand how you think. And so I, I think the get out, get in and get out method is one, especially if you're an introvert and you hate speaking up, you're in your own thoughts, you know, that's easy to do. But by then, and you've worked it all out, the conversation's over and you're on to the next topic, right? So that's one method. Another method is I call it piggyback. So what I'm going to say is, oh, okay, Julia, that's a great point. And let me add on a couple, something else that I think would be a, uh, maybe helpful or it's an additional idea to build off of what you just said. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call a piggyback. So guess what I just did there? I not only said my idea, but I just gave you a compliment and we made the idea better. So I like three things in once, mm -hmm. right? So that's a great example of where you can support someone and at the same time get your thoughts out to become a more of a thought leader. Great, and one last question that I have is, in that, in that long corporate experience of yours and you being a leader, how did you help your employees manage stress? I think I probably caused some stress. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I think we all cause each other stress, you know? I yes, well, when I think about the, the type of business we were in, you know, when you're talking about claims, People are not in their best selves. They're either hurt or they wrecked their car or they're not in a good place. Yeah. So what the claim handlers, a lot of times, and the supervisors, what they would deal with is very stressed out people, customers. And then they're doing everything they can to either de-escalate or to solve the problem. And so part of, I think, what was really um, helpful is what kind of tone do I set? Cause sometimes I did cause stress. I want to, you know, because we have time service, we have to meet, we have to make sure that, you know, people are taken care of or there's complaints that elevate and it's gotten so bad, right? It's coming to me now. And so we have, so that's going to cause stress because now I'm expecting answers. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a balance of, yes, we have those day to day, but what are we doing to support the people? So things like, all the resources that are available in the companies like we have um you know at the time you know you could actually get resources for stress management there's class 
or there could be um, like, um, there's a certain number of session you would get if you were an employee to talk to a counselor maybe, or as coach or somebody to help manage that. So there were resources, so we made that available. And then just listening, because if they see me on the floor, that helps because they know I'm in it with them versus just that's that's for you to deal with and I'm sitting in my office. So visibility, I think, was huge for stress because they knew I was right there with them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think especially as a leader, it's important that people feel that you care and that you're not disconnected from what they're going through because especially people in sales positions, support positions, or like even HR positions where you're, you know, exerting energy to help other people it can be really stressful especially i can imagine in the insurance industry when people are you know frustrated upset um you know something bad has happened to you know their house their car what whatever it is um but then you know there's people that take on that energy or just like being surrounded by that energy of like frustrated complaining kind of people um you know they, they would maybe even take that home with them yes was that a huge topic when you were there? Yes, um, it was a huge topic, and I think it still is a huge topic. And I was going to also say that when I think about the current position that I'm in and stress, a lot of women and men actually who come to talk to me really, a lot of times they're just completely out of balance in their lives. So they're stressed because there's so many demands on you know whether it's family and kids and you know trying to take care of their parents and all this so the stress is just and there's no time for themselves there's never any carved out time for self-care so that's where i see a lot of stress and or people have gone through divorce or life changes and so that's also a quite a bit i see that quite a bit uh for the women and a lot of it you know is just trying to figure out where do we squeeze the time for yourself. I'm sure you can relate to that, Julia. I can relate to that. And it's (laughs) like when I started, that was one of the biggest topics I started to talk about because we forget ourselves in the process because we take care of everything and everyone, um, but we forget ourselves in the process. And so self-care is huge um, because I feel like when you can fill your energy tanks and when you can you know, and that might be spending time on your own or doing something with somebody that, that gives you energy. Um, but when you have, when you can, you know, build that energy back up, you can actually give it back out. Um, but yeah. what we're doing nowadays is we're just depleting ourselves um, and our energy levels are so low, which is then why we are getting quicker upset and frustrated and sad and have all the different emotions because we're just tired and depleted and have no energy left to uh you know to, to have a strong mind and uh, yeah so yeah so self-care is huge so you said something that's very important um that you know as you know i've been personally working on and it's also a cultural piece and that's emotion and how to deal with emotions or i should say they're not handling the emotions because frankly that is not necessarily encouraged in in at least in my household and i can't speak for every asian household but i can tell you that it is not something that encourages to be in your emotion Mm -hmm. and i think that causes other stresses in your body in your in your you know emotional well-being 
And I saw that and I experienced that. Um, and I think that's a big part of kind of rediscovering and allowing that to tell you information. Emotions tell you information about what's happening, important information. And for you to eat, for me, like I stuffed it down and I would, you know, because I had so much to do, I don't have time. I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with the emotions later because they are not helpful right now. Can I just put it in my backpack and we'll just get it out later? That was probably very actually detrimental in a lot of ways. And it probably caused some of my health challenges um, that I did not realize at the time, uh, but it did. Um, I, yeah, that was huge. Okay. And when did that happen in your career where you were like, Oh, I should have paid more attention to my emotions earlier on. Well, I wish I could have uh, had the answer that quickly. That's not the way it happened. It wasn't that linear, but it was, I had, uh, I was in Bloomington, Illinois as a second line leader. I had just gotten promoted to claim manager, which was a department head. Then I moved from Illinois to New York. And then literally six months later on Valentine's day of 2007, I found out I got breast cancer. And at the time, when I think about it, I had tremendous amount of stress going on, not just from a work perspective, but a very difficult personal situation, personal life. It was not going well. And it just, I think the culmination of all of that, I believe that it contributed to my health challenges at that time. But it was, it was probably one of those most stressful times I've ever had in my life, um, because there was so much going on at that time. So I would say that was probably a big aha. And then probably the second time that happened was when I came to Atlanta after, you know, having nine locations, four to 600 people and a thousand independent adjusters and trying to figure out where, you know, where I was going to be next. That was probably another situation where I was probably under tremendous stress. And then, no, not too long after that, I found out I had diabetes. So again, I mean, not to, I can't sit there and say, because of X, this is what happened, but I'm sure it was a contributing factor. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of studies, you know, nowadays of how stress affects our whole system, right? Like when we are in the sympathetic state, so when our stress is activated and we have like all these stress hormones that are released, like cortisol and adrenaline, we are we are more productive, but if we are on this constant high level of stress, we start having side effects because what happens, and I think that's actually the most important point, is that our three main bodily functions, so the cardiovascular system, the digestive system, and our immune system are slowed down because yeah. we are in so much stress and our, you know, our body and our brain they just reduce all of these functions because they're like, I'm in stress mode. I don't have time to digest my food really, or I don't have time to, to mm -hmm. work the system because I just need to work, 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 or I need to take care of all these different things. And that's the problem. And I think that connection is the most important connection to know of. And that's what I'm teaching and what I'm telling all of my people and clients and participants of trainings. Because when you know that, then you know why it is so important to be preventive in right. stress management and, and regularly take care of yourself and practice self-care um, and look at the triggers and look where they come from um, and resolve them. Because if you don't and you know, you're 
your systems are so slowed down for a long period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen from um, the end, beginning of the year to the end of the year. It's it's a matter of years. But then once um, you know we, we've accumulated so much stress and have you know put our body under so much pressure, then it's unfortunately often too late because then we can just live with the consequences. Yeah, well, I, unfortunately, I've had to learn the hard way to what you just talked about. So I want to say everybody on the podcast, you all need to take Julia's class because <laughs> awareness is number one, right? That's step number one. And these behaviors, so like now I'm trying to, you know, like this morning I worked out, it's, you know, every morning I negotiate, do I go work out or don't I go work out? And then ultimately it's like, all right, let's go because I will have a vision of what it is that I want to feel like. So I think having that vision of where you want to be helps you get motivated about, you know, doing some of these that don't sound so much fun and it's a time, you know, you're like, I got other things to do, right? But and we always well, have other things to do. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. So I think that's huge. And then I did want to mention from a perspective of AAPI woman, when I think about, you know, the Apali program under Kapal, which is the Asian Pacific Women's, American Women's Leadership Institute, one of the things that we really emphasize is this whole, like, how, what are you doing to really look at yourself and your relationship with yourself in terms of, because that causes stress too. If you don't have a good relationship with yourself, that is a big issue, right? So that is one of the very first things we talk about and address is the, the who am I? So when you ask me that question about who am I, I was like, ooh, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of it is, so what? And I think you're the very first interview guest that took that question so literal. Because usually when I ask people who they are and what they're doing, they immediately go into their profession, you know? Yes. They are immediately like, I, you know, I, I work for XYZ company or I'm doing XYZ. Um, so I loved how you, how you took that um, literal and, and explained really who you are. Yeah, because it all starts with the interperson, with yourself and then the interpersonal then the community and the and the people that you serve and so it all builds from within it's an inside out job yeah. is the way i call it and i think if you don't have that relationship with yourself it is stressful because you may not be aligned to the values that are important to you and that causes stress yes values is a huge topic as well um, and one of the questions that i had as well because you said you had you were diagnosed with breast cancer and you dealt i'm sure with all of that but then you went back and you were continuing to be really successful as a leader um and taking care of so many people and then you got sick again so how what do you think did you learn from kind of the breast cancer diagnosis and maybe bringing that back in but was still not enough maybe to prevent kind of the next yeah so I think part of it is the, the sense that you feel obligated. You feel so responsible. And I always, you know, when you take on a role and you're, because the higher you move up, the less it becomes about you and it becomes more and more about other people. I think the way I looked at it is when I got sick, normally it's like I went too far. It being about other people and not enough about me and my well-being. And so I think it's just being out of balance. I learned that the first time with the breast cancer, I also learned 
the outpouring of um, people who are amazingly supportive during that process. So I got so much love and support during that time. All those relationships that I had, there were, you know, all, there were friends, there were, you know, that was the other piece. That's the other side of that. You get to learn about all these people, wonderful people who support you, right? And then the other piece of going into the whole, the diabetes piece, I realized that um, I needed an overhaul in my life. I did not just need an overhaul in my career. I just needed to completely relook at my life and said, okay, we seem to kind of repeat these things, these behaviors. So what is it that I have to do? Apparently I had to change careers completely. Mm -hmm. That was what I ended up doing. That's for some people the result, right? Of, of right. detrimental to your own body and health. That yeah. is what not what you have to do, but that helps people to get out of that and to like refocus completely. Right. And I will always forever love the organization and have and and will always be a big supporter. I think for me, I think it was time number one to make sure that I was taking care taking care of myself in terms of a whole person, taking care of the whole person, just like I'm talking about, right? And the second thing I would say is that I can't neglect these other parts. So when I talk about whole person, I mean things like your not just your intellectual, but your emotional well-being and making sure that you're financially where you need to be and that your physical and your nutrition is all, you know, something that you're looking at as well. And then your whatever your spirituality is, right? So a lot of these things have to be in congruence with who you are as a person. Otherwise, you're completely off balance or you're something's off. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because I feel like we have learned about the physical and nutritional piece. Like we know nowadays that it's really good for us to be healthy and to work out on a regular basis and to drink water. You're just having a sip of water, um, you know, but the emotional piece, I think is something that is really new to our society. Um, but had, that has such a strong effect and which I think is why so many people nowadays um, suffer from burnout and anxiety and depression, more like the mental health mm -hmm. because we are not aware of how, how we get them and where they come from and, you know, what is, you know, what we can do in order to take care of that. Um, Absolutely. And one thing that I'm going to mention for the Asian American uh, men and women out there is that I always pose the question, is it easier to talk to your boss about a salary and a promotion, or is it easier to talk to your parents about changing your career and or your major in school? And I was going to add Asian parents, but, you know, that could apply to other parents. Yeah. But there is stress in terms of talking to your parents sometimes about doing something that go, goes against security yeah. and or this this concept of this hierarchy of climbing the corporate ladder yeah. uh, and making you know and that's just part of the whole you know cultural piece because remember achievement and education right and so when i left when i decided to leave uh, corporate and go to nonprofit. Here's how the conversation goes. So my mom texts me. She's like 81 and she texts me. 
she says, Sue Ann, and she writes this like, I mean, I, I swear to God, the text message was like this long. And basically what she was telling me is that her and my stepdad had had a objective conversation and they both thought that I should stay. And so as much as I love them, you know, here I am like, really? I'm not a college student, right? Or I'm not, this is not my first rodeo, but yet they're still trying to get their hands into the pot about what I should be doing for a living. And yet she text messages me this, right? So I think part of what I had to learn is that I also had to stand up a little bit with my parents about what it is that was going to ring true to my heart. And the saddest part was I was at a, a conference at Emory University with Vietnamese students, did a workshop on career. I asked them, how many of you are in the major that you really, really want? And about 50% of the room raised their hand and the other 50% were like, no, I'm not. But they, my parents basically said that if I don't do these things, these majors, then they will not pay for my college. Mm -hmm. And so the pressure to convert, you know, to really, you know, fit into this mold of whatever this is supposed to look like from a career perspective, there's a lot of pressure on kids. I think Asian kids and not just Asian kids, but I know of Asian kids and they're I would love to see statistics, you know, for not just minorities, but overall to have that comparison because I wonder how much that influence is still there as well for non-minority um, kids, you know? I think my mom was probably like, okay, she's not going to be a doctor and she's not going to be a lawyer. What in the world is she going to be? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I did not fit the, the mold and I love business. You know, I love business. I hated my organic chemistry. I was not going to become a chemist, apparently. So I'm, you know, I love business. It's what I'm good at. I love leadership. I just have a passion for developing people. So I finally figured it out, but it took a while. And I wanted to ask you that because um, how did you, you know, you made the decision to leave the company, um, but then how did you... Uh, did you have that always that idea of creating something for Asian American, um, you know, minorities in the U.S. Um, and like build like a leadership program, or how did you come to the idea of creating your own NGO? Well, first of all, I wish I could take credit for that, but I can't because this organization has been in existence since 1995. Oh, okay. And so it was founded by Martha Lee, who was a Kellogg Fellow. And because there was a, a gap in Asian American women at the leadership tables. But for me, what happened was, you know, it, when I pushed the button to said, no, I'm not going to stay with the organization, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And there was a group of women who were all trying to make the similar decisions. And I remember mentioning, you know what, it would be kind of interesting to work in a nonprofit space because it's something I've always been curious about. I had no idea at the time. Well, within that week, I was talking to a friend of mine who happened to be serving on two different boards, one for Organization of Chinese Americans and one for the Center for Asian Pacific American Women. And she goes, hey, um, our executive director just resigned. Would you consider, have you ever thought about nonprofit? And if so, would you consider you know, stepping as an interim executive director? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no, I, I don't know. Let me think about that. Mm -hmm. 
And within the week, we had another conversation. We talked a little bit about the details, but because I was a fellow already of that organization, I already knew the organization and, and loved it. Mm -hmm. So it was easy to say yes. So, but it was just one of those things that it all kind of fell into place and I hadn't even done anything yet. And I was like, this is, this is a sign. Yeah, it, for sure. I totally believe in these kind of things that happen for a reason and that are all coming together at the same, at the right time, you know, in the right place. Yeah. And I have to, I have to say everything that I learned, all the leadership skills that I learned, it all transfers mm -hmm. into this nonprofit space. And that's been so helpful. And I'm so grateful for that, for all the years of training. And the, I mean, I did get some pretty phenomenal training at State Farm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those things where you're like, wow, I do, I, yes, I can apply all of these things and for the good of this nonprofit organization and really do something to help people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Well, you just answered the question that I always ask my podcast interview guests. <laughs> the question is always, what are you most grateful for? And you just answered that. So um, I'm moving right to the next question because the next question, I love, and I love to ask that question. I feel like I've already learned so much wisdom from my guests because they have so much wisdom to share. And so usually the question is, um, what are your three most important wisdoms that you would like to share? And I would like to even make it a little bit more specific for you and ask, what would you share for minorities? What, what was the biggest three wisdoms that you had to learn and that you would like to share? I think number one is it is important to be curious and to be a learner. That is something that, um, that I think really serves you well, because instead of being a knower, you can ask questions mm -hmm. and find out more. Usually there's something more to than what's the obvious. So asking those questions, and I call them powerful questions, you can find out more information and it ends up broadening your own perspective. So I think that's number one. And number two is that I had to learn to ask for help. I was not good at this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I thought the answer was you have to figure it out yourself. And sometimes I think I got in a little bit of hot water because I probably could have asked for some help and gotten the answer that I needed versus me trying to figure it all out on my own. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge lesson and that people are glad to assist, but you have to ask, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And number three, I would say is just having the mentors. Um, I learn from all kinds of people. I have mentors who are, you know, executives, but I also have mentors who are students. Mm -hmm. They give me a very interesting perspective of what young people want and need today and for the future. Mm -hmm. And so I think just having that humility to ask a student to be a mentor, I mean, that's huge, right? I mean, that's, but I think that's important. You got to keep yourself very grounded in, a, in that way so that you can learn more and to really be able to serve in the way that you need to with the changing times. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for sharing them. I, I love that idea about the humility to ask um, somebody that is a lot younger to you um, for mentorship. You're amazing. Yeah. How did you get to that idea? 
that you was that just kind of more spontaneous that you were like oh I met this really interesting person or actually no, I was when I was doing some workshops and when I so a lot of times what happens is that I ask questions and then we have time to interact a little bit and I get you know people's thoughts and I think when I started listening to some of these students, I'm like, wow, they're really sharp. They're, they have a lot of deep thoughts. Um, and, you know, for being so young, they have a lot of ideas about what they want to accomplish. So it's just very driven. And uh, so I was really impressed. Uh, and I think that's what got me to thinking, you know what, I need to get a little bit more. So one of the things I did was, I got with a uh, amazing, amazing young person who is a founder of the uh, Millennial Asian Chamber of Commerce. Her name's Rhea Kim. I'm going to give her a shout out because she is amazing young woman who is doing rock star work in her own nonprofit. She's got a consulting business and she's also working with the university to develop a class in the master's program. And there's so many inspiring young people right now. I think my goal is to find them and see what I can do to help support and be a catalyst. But that's why. Okay, amazing. I love that story. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so did you, do you have a book that you are getting really, like, that will change your life or that you were super inspired by or maybe read over and over again because you just take so many learnings out of it? Um, well, you know, have you ever read The Alchemist? Yes, of course. I, I, everybody and their brother, I'm sure. But that one, I can go back over and over because it is all about kind of finding your purpose and all that journey that, you know, the main character goes on and then come to find out it was there all along, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, that to me is huge. So The Alchemist is one. And then a more business reading is Death by Meeting. And that's a great book because it's done through storytelling, which keeps me more interested than kind of this more of an academic style. But if it's storytelling, I kind of get into it. And so I think uh, Patrick Lencioni does a great job. He has, it's very short books, but they're really good business lessons. I love him. Okay. Uh, I think he's, he's another great read. Awesome. Thank you for that. And so what are your next plans? Because I know there's a lot of plans that you have. Sven. There's a lot of plans. So um, I've got a big conference coming up in Atlanta, October 17th and 18th, where um, the Center for Asian Pacific American Women has uh, collaborated with the Women's Entrepreneurial Opportunities Project. So weop.org, a predominantly African-American women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Fabulous group. We're going to have a joint conference and it's going to be a two day event. Um, everything, everywhere from Georgia Power to Care USA and then Atlanta Technical College. So I'm excited about that because that's different. Um, it's a different perspective on bringing these two groups together. So that's one big piece. Um, I'm taking the, uh, the Apollo program and we, I've been working with the fellows, several fellows, to kind of take the core pieces that are really making that, that um, program special, but then modernizing it to today's woman and to the future. So there are some things that we might have to change because nutrition is going to be added, as an example. That's an important piece. Okay. 
So those, that's a good example of some of the things that we're working on. And then our 25th year anniversary is in 2020. Okay. And uh, July 16th and 17th, we are having a conference in Houston. And so we're very excited about that. And, you know, we've got other, I've got other things working with corporate and different people as well. But yeah, those are some exciting things we've got going. Yeah. And I know you're a super busy lady. So um, <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting that you're traveling so much and you're seeing all these different things and you're meeting so many smart, inspiring people. So really building those relationships, right? That's important. All the time. Definitely. Um, if people are listening now and they would love to get in touch with you or they would love, love to learn more about the programs um, that the NGO that you're working for is offering, how can they get in touch with you or get more information? So our website is apawomen.org. So I can definitely send you that information, Julia, if you need to put that on the web. And then the other thing is my email is sahong at apawomen.org. So I'll send that to you. You can, you know, share that with your, your uh, audience. Yeah. And I hope you will reach out. I, I'm excited about what we're doing and who we're able to assist yeah. to find the purpose. Yeah, definitely. I, I love the work that you're doing. Um, and I will definitely add all of the contact details to the show notes as well so people can easily access that. Um, so yeah, so thank you so, so much, Suen, for being in the podcast today. It was a pleasure to have you. You're such an inspiring, um, fabulous, powerful woman. And I'm really excited that our paths have crossed. Thank you so much for having me on your show and excited to, to hear more about what you're doing as well. Thank you so much, Sven. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be extremely happy and grateful if you could leave me a comment and a five-star rating. If you know someone who would benefit from the information I talked about today, please feel free to share it with them, no matter if it is your friends, your colleagues and or your family members. You will always find all links and a summary of the podcast in the show notes. It would be great if we could connect on Instagram or via email. You can find all details of how to find me in the show notes as well. In that way, you can also send me any questions that you might have. And as I mentioned, I also have a wonderful YouTube channel now where you can post comments and questions. So please reach out. I'm glad you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for your trust. With gratitude, Julia.